The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome listeners, it's Dr. Sam Williams here and I hope you've had an amazing start to 2024. I know that I have since the 1st of February marked the podcast's third birthday, but this week marks the start of a brand new reel of episodes where I hope to bring you more expert guests to discuss topics which come up in paces to get you that all-important pass. And I wouldn't be as motivated to create more of these episodes if it wasn't for all of the generous donators on the Buy Me A Coffee page. I had a splurge of donations towards the end of 2023 and so this week I have a long list of heroes to mention. Thank you to Holly for your kind words about the pod and the donation. Thank you to Lydia, to Akash, to Kirsty and to Angelica who all passed their paces first time on the new format. Thank you to Mila and thank you to Josh who donated as a full-time GP who got his pass several years after his written exams. Such great news and congratulations to you all. But without further ado, let's get into our first episode of Usual Programming for 2024. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. My name is Dr. Sam Williams, and this week I'm delighted to bring you another fantastic expert guest to the podcast. Today's guest is consultant geriatrician at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London. He's a keen educationalist, as well as an IMT regional training program director, and he's recently returned from examining on the MRCP Paces exam abroad. It's my, it's my pleasure to warmly welcome Dr. Dan Firmage to the podcast. Dan, welcome. Hi Sam, thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Well, we're very grateful for you giving up some time. And and today's topic is something which I know for a fact comes up in paces because listeners, it came up in one of my clinical consultations, and that is memory loss. We know it comes up. It's a topic closely related to geriatrics. And and Dan, why do you think this topic is so suitable uh, for paces? And why do you think it's important that medical registers need to be able to rapidly assess this sort of thing? I mean, if you've done if you've done any work in a hospital in the UK, you'll find lots of people presenting with memory problems, acute and chronic. Uh, and I think often is done quite poorly in hospitals because we're focused on other issues, and and that kind of gets a second thought. Uh, I think it's it's really good for paces because it's quite a distinct entity. It's not too complicated. It's not too fast sprawling. There's enough in it that allows you to demonstrate your knowledge above and beyond just be able to do the basics sort of do the driving test stuff where you can highlight to the examiners that you are aware of the possible diagnoses and key bits of the history and I think it can also be useful in communication skill stations because there can be lots around explaining dementia advanced care planning uh, in patients with dementia end of life care so it, it can come up uh, in a fair few places and like you I've seen scenarios covering memory loss and communication quite frequently. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the other thing which we'll come on to talk about later on in the podcast is that there are physical signs as well, which the examiners will expect uh, candidates to detect. So with that in mind, let's get started on our conversation on memory loss. (laughs) 
So, Dan, if we just start off, we talked about how this sort of patient might be presented in a clinical consultation station, and that's probably the station where we think it may be found. Although, as you alluded to, communication is a really important part of it. And now with the slightly shorter communication station, it could be something as easy as uh, explaining a diagnosis to a family member, explaining the diagnosis to a patient, or in a clinical consultation, a full comprehensive assessment of a patient. By and large, when you've encountered this type of uh, station in your experience examining, is that the sort of typical vignette which you find this sort of uh, presentation? Is it a long-term progressive cognitive impairment presentation? I think it can be quite variable, to be honest. It could be, uh, you know, change in in behaviour, memory loss, uh, concerns about someone's function. There can be a vague physical symptom that might be associated. It might be pinned with mood. Um, so that vignette that you get could be quite specific or it could be quite broad. And so then it, it will be up to the candidate, I think, to really get that history of presenting complaint focused in quickly uh, so they can kind of work out which direction they're going. And I think the key thing is going to be the duration of symptoms, as you alluded to. And the other thing to say is obviously you might well be asked to take a collateral history with the patient being there. That's quite something that happens a lot in international exams because of the language barrier. But we're we may be seeing more of as well in the in the UK exams. Yeah, and I really want to just focus in on one thing that you mentioned there in terms of new unusual behaviours, which which may be signposting signs of, of a process of cognitive impairment in terms of patients may be losing their way in familiar environments. They may have a reduced safety awareness. They may be self-neglecting and things like that. And our listeners are going to have to take a very uh, holistic approach to their patient's assessment, which is much at odds with maybe the, the hyper detail, which is a, demanded in the uh, clinical examination stations or the the pure clinical examination stations. So Dan, we're going to start off by discussing the differential diagnoses first, through which we will move into our uh, history taking, because knowing our differential diagnosis will will help us to hone our history of percent complaint. So we are signposting to the examiners. We know the range of conditions which can uh, present with this. And so what do you think are the most important diagnoses that our listeners need to be probing for when approaching this type of station when the vignette is suspicious for a, a, a cognitive impairment process? So I guess the first thing to I guess think about is that in, in real life, the common things we see are the common dementias in frail older adults. In PACE's exams, people will be thinking of the more unusual, rarer causes, and I, I suppose are possibly slightly more likely to be appearing um, in a PACE's exam. But what we often see is people going in with the, the really rare things first rather than picking out the, the common things. So, I mean, the most common things we see on the wards um, and in memory clinic uh, would be the common types of dementia. So mixed dementia is accounting for a lot, but that includes um, Alzheimer's dementia, which is often, mem- you know, short-term memory loss is the, one of the key symptoms and it sort of just slowly progresses over time. Uh, vascular dementia, which is probably more common than we give credit for, often post-stroke and, and with cerebrovascular disease. Uh, that often is more related to function. Um, mood can be very much affected. And I always say those patients sitting in a ward bed who are not rehabbing and the physios tell you they're just not engaging for several weeks. The question for me is always, have they got vascular dementia that's affecting their initiative to do stuff? And they can obviously have uh, gait problems and urinary problems and other things. Lewy body dementia is a good one for paces because there are some key classical features. So the memory side of things is often more preserved there might be periods of reduced consciousness, Parkinsonism, um, hallucinations, visual hallucinations. So key things to ask for in, in history um, and sleep problems. So vivid dreams, fighting out in your sleep would push you more down that side of things. Then there's Parkinson's dementia, but usually you'd expect Parkinsonian symptoms to come before the memory problems. Um, younger patients, possibly frontotemporal dementia. So more behavioral problems, personality, aggression. Problems with language can be um, important. Um, Again, the memory side of things is is less uh, consistent in those patients. We think about normal pressure hydrocephalus, which has got the classical triad of gait problems, incontinence and and memory loss. And then in the paces, we mentioned the more more unusual thing. So I think mood and depression is, is one. And I have seen a scenario where there was memory loss and actually the diagnosis was depression in an older adult. Really important not to miss screening for mood. Um, and then rarer things, hypothyroidism probably isn't going to present just with memory impairment, infections, space occupying lesions, and then 
up more unusual things like CJD, which I've now finally seen uh, one case of in my career, which presented with some anxiety and memory problems in a 50 year old woman. Um, but I think the key, the key ones are the Alzheimer's, the vascular, the Lewy body dementia would be the three key ones for me. And I guess in a younger patient, the frontotemporal side of things, and um, you can then build your history around the key features of those. And that, that works quite well, I think. Fantastic, Dan. And the one thing which I think is really important is that this is possibly one of the few stations where it may be possible to make a clinical diagnosis based on the story or at least a strong clinical suspicion of a diagnosis based on the history provided to you with possibly some physical signs as well. So, Dan, is it actually realistic for our listeners to to make a clinical diagnosis or can you simply expect them to say they have a strong clinical suspicion of a diagnosis? Um, I think it's always hard to commit 100% in a 10-minute or 15-minute consultation. But I think if the history fits really well, dementia is a clinical diagnosis all around the history, and it would be difficult to do it without a proper cognitive assessment. But I think the key thing is the duration of the history. And we were always told, you know, don't make a diagnosis of dementia in patients who've been admitted to hospital. The guidelines have finally changed on that. But it's all around a history that's strongly suggestive of um, you know, progressive cognitive impairment over longer than six months. So if, you're, if you've got a family member saying, you know, there's been a two year progressive history of, uh, you know, short term memory loss, which has worsened over time, and they now can't remember me and everything else fits, I think you can be fairly confident that there's a cognitive impairment diagnosis. And what you're going to be saying is actually, we're going to do the other tests and investigations to confirm the level of cognitive impairment and to rule out any unreversible causes, but less than 1% in older people have a reversible cause of memory impairment. So I think if the history fits, the duration is the key thing and any other features that might put you into one particular box, you can be fairly confident, but you wouldn't want to sort of rubber stamp it without. Um, but you could say, you know, if a patient says I'm concerned I have dementia and you're pretty sure, you know, don't beat around the bush and say, oh, well, we've got to do these tests. You never know. I think it's reasonable to say that that's, def- that's a definite possibility. It really sounds like it could be and go from there with all the other caveats. Yeah, fantastic. And so you've you've really nicely outlined the probably the first approach that our listeners should think about taking, which is building a rapport with the patient and establishing their viewpoint and or their relative's viewpoint, because it may well be, as you mentioned, that they have a collateral history, they have a relative there in the station. And the, you mentioned about the onset and the duration. So when did it start? How has it progressed? And one of the things which is taught and maybe is a uh, one of the things which we find more grey than black and white in clinical practice is they say that vascular dementia tends to have a stepwise progression and Alzheimer's is more gradual. Is that something which is seen in clinical practice or is it more more grey than that, Dan? Yeah, I think it's uh, that's what I, I spent learned many times over the court years of revision for various exams, but I don't think it's as clear cut as that. I think you have to be careful because I think people can have a stroke and then be significantly cognitively impaired after that, but it may not progress. Uh, And then they have post-stroke cognitive impairment. Further strokes then may lead to dementia or other processes in the background. I don't, you know, you might find in in, if someone's written a scenario that fits that nicely, it it might be a clue. Uh, Just thinking the other sort of major diagnosis that we didn't think about, which is really important, particularly where I work in central London, is is alcohol. Uh, We're seeing a lot of alcohol-related dementia and um, brain-related damage from alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing which I think is would be pretty important for our listeners to get their head around is is the type of memory decline. And this is the sort of uh, specialist terminology, I guess, and it's not something as a cardiologist that I have spoken or uh, thought about when thinking about patients with cognitive impairment. But Dan, I wonder if you can talk us through the different types of memory decline so that our listeners can, when when they come to their presentation to the examiner, they can say, well, these are the types of uh, memory which are affected in this given patient because there are a few and before doing my research for this episode i was completely oblivious of so i wonder if you could just talk us through the different types of memory decline that patients can have yeah so i think there are some i think for the purposes of a paces exam you're probably not going to be expected to know this in detail certainly the examiners even i would say some of those who are geriatricians wouldn't know this in detail but i guess it's useful to have an understanding um, so there's the stuff like forgetting words and dates and facts which is the kind of short-term and memory loss faces sometimes which would be more semantic and memory loss and prospective memory is more about stuff in the future so they're forgetting to go to their appointments and they're unable to kind of organize themselves for future stuff Um, there's working memory so you know they get to the top of the stairs and they can't remember what they're there i think everyone gets that to a certain degree but that may be more exacerbated but 
doing tasks, making stuff, driving, they begin to struggle with with doing their sort of day-to-day executive functioning. Uh, and then I guess the episodic memory is more around specific past events. And obviously we know that in many dementias, uh, particularly I have Alzheimer's related, you know, stuff in the long past is very well preserved and they can recall what they were doing 45 years ago, but they can't remember what they had for breakfast this morning. So those are, those are important things, I think. I, again, I think you don't need to, you wouldn't be able to spew out the specifics, but you would sort of want to demonstrate that you covered kind of those kind of things in your history taking so that you you didn't miss any key key bits of the history. Yeah, exactly. I also sort of think that even though the examiners may not be familiar with that specific terminology, that's exactly the sort of stuff which I think they might like if you came out with with that sort of specific terminology. They think, oh, well, actually, you know, they they know more than me about about the different types of memory decline. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll definitely be getting a bonus point if you if you structure it like that. And then we mentioned about already the effect it's having on their function, which I guess would probably lead on logically from asking about what types of memory loss they're having, particularly things like working memory. You know, you mentioned driving a car, things like uh, making a cup of tea or something like that. That is the type of stuff which I think would probably be notable and which family members and patients would readily report, maybe without even prompting. Yeah, agree. I think that's key for this. There are a few uh, red flag events uh, which which patients can report, which are usually to do with patient safety, Dan. So what are the sort of red flag events which make you think, oh, actually, this person has a form of memory loss or cognitive impairment, which is starting, which may affect to their which may affect their safety yeah so i think this is a vital kind of question in the history have they done anything that's worried or concerned you so the common things we see are left the gas on left the iron on wandered outside and left the door open done something dodgy in the car got lost outside and had to be brought back by somebody ovens anything that can cause harm or get them lost are the key things and as you say often families will tell you that straight on but sometimes you know, we find that these things uh, come up even quite a long time after we started exploring. Um, and often the NDT finds many other things. So it's important to delve quite deeply for these kind of things. And around driving is important. You know, do you feel safe in the car with them? And if, if they say no, then that should be a, a big red flag. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we spoke about um, changes in behaviour or maybe even inappropriate behaviour, loss of inhibitions being a particular feature in in frontotemporal dementia are there any uh, particular um, features or any particular behaviors which you found more more prevalent in your experience of, of those p- particular conditions of frontotemporal dementia i think the two kind of key ones are sort of one that lo- loss of their usual personality doing thing you know often it's not wanting to do stuff not engaging not being bothered apathy um, and the other one is aggression um, they become irritable and aggressive. And obviously the key differential in, in that scenario is a, is a space-occupying lesion would be one of the key things that you'd want to exclude. But yeah, I think it's it's mood, apathy, and then, you know, ag- aggressive. And often it's people who've been very placid in previous life have become irritable and, and aggressive and, and families have noticed a change. Yeah, fantastic. And then just thinking about any additional symptoms which may have been noted, and I, I've, I've put down in my research e.g. Parkinson's signs, I'm guessing things like tremor and bradykinesia, rigidity are things which we'd expect our listeners to to go through when if, if they're ticking through our tick boxes of the various types of cognitive impairment or the differential diagnosis, as, as we mentioned earlier. But one of the things which I thought was particularly important, which I haven't put on the research, is, is the non-motor features of Parkinson's, which I think are, are particularly important. So I wonder if maybe you could just underline those for us um, and and think about the types of things which may be indirect signs of Parkinson's, because I'm sure the listeners know bradykinesia, rigidity and tremor, but there are far more non-motor signs of Parkinson's, which may be features in this type of presentation. Yeah. So, I mean, take your pick of which body system you want to, the Parkinson effects. And obviously a Parkinson's would be a good consultation station in itself, taking away the, me- the memory side of things. So, um, I mean, it affects in the later stages, obviously swallowing, uh, sleep can be very badly affected. I mentioned earlier, kind of REM sleep disorder, vivid dreams, constipation is a key feature of Parkinson's, dry mouth, continence problems, gait, shuffling, uh, poor turning. It really does affect uh, lots of systems. And actually often Parkinson's patients will report the non-motor symptoms much more detrimental to their quality of life than they do the motor symptoms, which can be often better controlled. Um, I think those are the key ones. I'm sure there are some that I've 
forgotten but um i think what the examiner would want you to want to look for is that you demonstrated an awareness of okay i can demonstrate to you that i know some key features of parkinson's and i'm screening for that you wouldn't be expected to do the whole lot but if you could come out with the key the core features plus a few non-motor symptoms the examiner would tick the box so this person clearly knows what they're looking for And then moving on to our past medical history. Well, I mean, first, is there anything else in the history presents complaint down which you think we've we've missed, or is anything is anything notable there that you think we any bases we haven't covered with regard to the history presents complaint? Uh, in terms of history presents complaint itself, I think the rest of the stuff comes up in the rest of the history that you'll cover for. Uh, I guess the thing we didn't mention about frontotemporal dementia is sometimes people become disinhibited, so take the clothes off, we in the corner of the room, things like that. Those that's the other kind of presentation I, I forgot to mention. Okay, and then moving on to our past medical history, we often think about risk factors and things which will increase your risk of developing a particular condition. And maybe if we start off with vascular dementia as one of the first top differential diagnoses, these are our conventional cardiovascular risk factors, aren't they, Dan? Yes, I think just go through your standard cardiovascular risk factors, hypertension, cholesterol, diabetes, previous cerebrovascular disease, and that will tick off all of those quite nicely. And I think everyone will know those probably like the back of their hand. Yeah, absolutely. But it's slightly more tricky when we come to some of the other, some of the other differential diagnoses. So, I mean, things like uh, Alzheimer's disease or, or Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's dementia, are there any particular risk factors for any of those that our, um, that our listeners should be probing for in, in the background past medical history of, of their patients? Uh, Alzheimer's not really family history possibly is probably the only one particularly if it's a younger onset memory impairment you'd want to make sure um, but obviously that's not strictly past medical history Parkinson's and Lewy body not specifically and yeah as I say I don't think in terms of past medical history there's any other obvious ones I guess previous mood and um, kind of psychiatric history is important uh, in within that yeah absolutely and then as part of our extended history, we'll also talk about drug history as well. And this is potentially another place where our listeners might be able to highlight safety concerns because obviously patients having memory problems with their medications, if they are self-managed, leaves them vulnerable to uh, underdosing or, or overdosing. And so what are the types of important factors which our listeners will have to ask about when it comes to a drug history? So I think there's two key bits relating to memory. Uh, one is the medications that contribute to cognitive impairment. So this is big at the moment. Most of you will probably have heard if you're working with a general prescription. So anticholinergic medications, there's hundreds of them now. So things like amitriptyline, lots of anti-psychotics um, and uh, various other antidepressants and things, um, and random drugs like prochlorperazine and digoxin and uh, various things have huge anticholinergic burdens, things for urinary incontinence, so oxybutynin and all of those. Um, so if you can point those things out, if they're in the drug history, uh, stopping those in some patients actually makes a significant improvement in their cognitive impairment. And then secondly, the thing that you mentioned is, you know, many patients don't take their medications. And a big reason for that is that they, they don't remember. Um, so probing about compliance, adherence, so they take, are they using a dosset box? Uh, are they managing to fill their own prescriptions? Is the family doing that for them? Do the family find a full bo dosset box or packet of tablets at the end of the, at the end of the week? Um, I think that's a big clue for how people are managing uh, the medications and, and can be explored beyond just what medications are you taking, which is obviously the standard. Yeah, brilliant. So then moving on to our social history, this is something which is going to form a larger part of this type of station, maybe than some other clinical consultations which may come up. Um, I'm just going to tick off the the necessary, which is smoking and alcohol as vascular risk factors. But you did mention particularly in your own practice, alcohol is a is has been a, a predominant uh, feature in, in patients presenting with cognitive impairment as well. Yeah, we we see a huge amount of alcohol related brain damage and dementia again, often in younger people, but in older people, and it doesn't have to be you know the the proper alcohol-dependent patients who've been, you know, doing two bottles of vodka a day for 20 years. Actually, you know, if you've got an older person drinking half a bottle of wine or a bottle of wine, you know, a day, uh, stopping can actually, you know, controlled fashion can actually, you know, make their cognitive impairment appear to improve commonly. Uh, and I think don't forget drugs, illicit drugs as well, because uh, people are, you know, taking other forms of, you know, recreational drugs that can also impact on, on memory if, if taken over a long time. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, we've already mentioned already the impact of driving. You've mentioned about, do you feel safe in the car with this person? But it's an important decision because you're potentially removing someone's independence if you're saying, you know, you don't think they're safe to drive. Yeah. And I think a key, a key topic of discussion in this could be, you know, the, the driving element and um, that would come out in the questioning. And that's how we get around it in clinical practice. You know, we ask people who know them, do you feel OK? Do you feel safe? Have they done anything dodgy? Have they been involved in any accidents? And actually, some people with dementia who are just doing their usual trips can still drive safely, but um, it needs to be carefully monitored and, and um, flagged up potentially. Absolutely. And then as part of our holistic assessment we're going to be asking about their living arrangements hopefully if there's a relative there that is helping you with the history it's going to be important to establish who's next of kin are they nearby are there formal care arrangements and then a a broad brushstrokes assessment to their level of independence and i guess what comes into that as well dan is is frailty which is you know something obviously that you deal with day in day out yeah, so I think social history is often done poorly in consultation, regardless of what the scenario is, because people get to it last and they want to move to examination. So I think this one, it really does need to be kind of opened up um, as much as possible, as you say. So who, who who's around for them is, is, is vital. Um, it might be that you're talking to them. Are neighbours getting involved? Are there, is there other organisations? Do they have carers? Are they remembering to do stuff for themselves? So particularly, are they remembering to eat and drink? Are they remembering to make meals for themselves? Are they, make, are they getting themselves dressed? Is the house being cleaned properly? All of those things can provide really good clues as to how someone's coping. And there's kind of memory impairment without kind of physical frailty, which is the kind of lack of safety awareness, forgetting to do the stuff, not you know not having the initiative to do those things that might need help. And then there's the frailty with cognitive impairment where there are physical care needs as well as kind of cognitive ones. Um, and that might be important to tease out uh, as well. And we often struggle to get help for people, the more robust physical patients with dementia or memory impairment that affect their functioning. It can be difficult to prove to people like social services that they have needs compared to the to the older people. So Dan, that brings us to the end of our history. Is there anything you think we we, any boxes we haven't quite ticked in terms of our history taking for this type of patient no i think we've covered most of it and there's potential lots of avenues that you can go down i think it's just about having a really systematic approach and this is the same for any consultation go back to your medical school history and go through in a systematic way and when you've got that five minutes of reading time whatever the clue is you know use that time to to just jot some of the areas that we've discussed to touch on because if you can signpost and screen in, in many of the areas we've we've discussed you'll be you'll be easily going through with no problems yeah absolutely and i guess the other thing is just to be in in this type of situation whilst we've covered a lot of bases it's it's critical that our listeners are going to be led by the vignette in front of them so the patient the actor whoever it is is going to give you an avenue and it's your job to not just blindly go down the avenue but explore all avenues and decide which one is the most appropriate for your station so Dan, whilst it might not be relevant for the communication station, clinical examination will be important in the clinical consultation stations if that's the setting where you find this presentation. And so thinking through our list of differential diagnoses, what sort of clinical signs would be most appropriate for our listeners to uh, pick up on or look to examine when they come to assess this patient? For this, you've got to pick what you examine and, and pick the key things that you think might might get you the gold if it's there um, and this is difficult it's better now because it's a longer scenario you've got a bit more time to think so I would say if you've got time and your history has been done you know just do a brief systematic examination you know look at the hands listen to the heart look in the mouth uh, you know a brief kind of thing but the key things that you're going to want to do are I guess really um, look for any kind of vascular obvious vascular risk factors which there may or may not be present um, think about some kind of screening neurological examination because you're obviously thinking, could this be a space occupying lesion? Is there any um, neurology? And, and again, that doesn't have to be anything major. You might want to just test power in all the limbs, do a bit of coordination and then quickly um, look at the, the nerves in the face. Uh, you, you, If you've picked up things that might hint towards Parkinson's, you could look for the three cardinal features of Parkinson's. That would make you look very good. And eye movements can be helpful again unlikely that you'll have something like PSP in paces but it does it, it does come up occasionally when these patients are fairly stable and then a set of obs with a postural blood pressure is always helpful I think the key thing would be um, the screening neurological that would be the vital thing and then the other bits 
And then obviously, if you've picked up in the history that there have been any other more specific symptoms related to any other system, you'd want to have a look at those. And I guess depending on how much time you've got, whether you throw in a kind of very brief cognitive screen like an AMT, I don't think it would be essential to do. But obviously, you'd want to say that you would you would do that and see how you've got how, how much time you've got as to whether you want to go down that road or not. Yeah. I did put sort of a form of formal cognitive assessment into the uh, under the umbrella of investigations, but it's going to sort of bridge the gap between the two, isn't it? And so I, I really think it would be slightly tricky in terms of time management for them to expect you to perform any sort of formal cognitive assessment. But I think you're absolutely right that knowing of one or two formal cognitive assessment tools uh, would be helpful for our listeners to say, well, I know the types of instruments which are used to assess these patients formally. Yeah. And actually, I would say, I was going to say, um, if you've got time at the end, if you finish in eight minutes and you've got seven minutes left uh, and you don't know what to do, you could do an AMT. But then I was thinking, actually, if you've done that and you finished eight minutes, you probably missed some key stuff in the history of examination. So it's probably worth going back and focusing on those things rather than trying to get bogged down in, you know, when was World War II kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So mentioning a form of cognitive, uh, formal cognitive assessment is probably going to be important. And the other thing which I think would would be uh, helpful and and part of maybe the neurological assessment is to see the patient walk. I think that would just be helpful in terms of you know you can see how easily they can rise from a chair. You can see if they have any gait disturbance. So asking the patient to walk, I think, would be a valuable thing. Um, and and it may take uh, a bit of time, but now that we've got the, the the newer, longer station, as you say, there's a bit more time to do that. I think trying to uh, adding that into the eight minute version of the brief clinical consultations, that sort of thing would be quite tricky to justify doing in such a tight time frame. Yeah. And I think walking the patient is very underdone in paces, both in neurological examination, but also in consultation. And um, there are so many places where it could be helpful. And people, I think, are a bit scared to do it, a bit scared to get people up. If the patient doesn't want to or can't, they'll just tell you no. And um, so I think always think about, should I get the patient up for a few steps? I think it can be very helpful. Yeah, fantastic. So then if we move from our examination, which we've bridged with a form of formal cognitive assessment. So Dan, I wonder if we could just d- d- dwell on that for a moment. What So if the listeners are mentioning forms of formal cognitive assessments, what, what are the types of tools which you use in your day-to-day practice to formally assess these types of patients so i guess there's this sort of screening tools that we use and we should all be using in hospital which i think it's worth thinking about if this is a patient in hospital so that would be really the 4AT seems to be the one that's come into real use and prior to that it was the CAM the confusion assessment method I think some awareness of a screening tool to help to differentiate between dementia delirium and no cognitive impairment um, would be useful especially as that's part of our everyday practice Um, and then I think there are several that people will have heard of so the old sort of old-fashioned one was the mini mental state examination then there was the MOCA there's the issues around copyright with both of those but I think Often they're used in clinical practice, particularly in an inpatient environment, because they're fairly speedy to do. Um, There are other things like clocks, which we occasionally use. Um, I think the key one that we would use in the memory clinic would be the Addenbrooke's cognitive examination, which is called ACE3, which is a hundred point thing. And it really is much better at looking at exactly where, in what areas the the deficits are. It's a bit more thorough than MMSC and MOCA, which can be helpful kind of for a kind of quick assessment but um i don't think again they would be need to know the the in-depth details but i guess having an awareness of two or three of the common assessments that we would use in hospital and memory clinic would be uh, important yeah brilliant and then moving on to maybe the more conventional investigations which we talk about when we do our paces so this is going to come when we've finished our history we've finished our examination and probably would be helpful to either discuss with the patient or the relative the things which we're going to test for or in the discussion with the examiner about what blood tests are you going to do so so dan you could probably justify performing any number of blood tests but what do you think of the absolutely essential blood tests which uh, the listeners need uh, need to be performing for these patients yeah, so again, I think we have to think about the difference between a sort of presentation which is a frail older person versus a younger person with one of the memory problems. So there's a slight difference. So I think for for everyone, everyone will get the standard full blood count, renal, liver, bone, CRP, uh, thyroid function tests, um, and then probably in addition to that, B12 and folate. Calcium is vital, which I mentioned in bone, but often gets missed by people. Um, and then HIV serology and syphilis serology 
particularly if there's a suspicion that, that that might be relevant. I think those are really the key ones. Beyond that, for most frail older people that come in to memory clinic and hospital, we don't do anything more than that. Um, in terms of bloods for, for the kind of younger people, there might be more unusual things that the neurologist might do, like autoimmune encephalitis screens and antibodies and things. That I think that you would only go down that road if the history was sort of more suggestive of, of the more unusual kind of things. Um, but I think those are the key bloods, a, a, a core set, and then HIV, syphilis, calcium, thyroid, and, and hematinics are probably the basic ones. After the bloods, often there'll be some form of imaging, which we're going to use for our patient. And I guess the sort of seminal investigation, if if we're going to have one imaging investigation, it's going to be a plain CT head. Yeah. So obviously the key reason for imaging is, number one, to rule out any other pathology. Um, and then secondly to potentially help you if you're trying to work out what type of dementia and this is going to be more important as we get things like these new biologics coming in potentially for dementia patients because we're going to need to be more careful so i think if you've got a frail person in a hospital and there's a history of memory and you just want to do some imaging to make sure that there is something then a ct head is the sort of one we do in hospital because it's quick and easy however the gold standard and the kind of recommended as per nice and probably the one you'd want to do in the community patients and people who you were more interested in what the underlying pathology was, then it would be an MRI of the brain. Um, I think we try and do that where possible. But as you say, the CT is the quick and easy one to rule out any problems. And it is often fine if people are, are, are much frailer and we don't want to put them through an MRI that's probably not going to change their management. Yeah. And I guess the, the thing which the listeners are going to have to do is justify their choice of, of CT head. So if they're asked the question, you know, what would you be looking for on a CT head scan of this patient? What what are the possible answers that, that our listeners could come out with? So CT head, really, all you're looking for is no brain tumour, big cerebral atrophy, small vessel disease. Um, I guess those are really the key uh, or stroke disease, you know, significant stroke disease. Those are the key things that you'd find. Whereas on an MRI, you know, the neuroradiologists now can pick up, you know, tiny signs of uh, you know, things like PSP, or they can really look for small, minute signs that would help us to make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or Parkinsonian or PSP or some of the more unusual things. And so probably I'd say that's more or less all of the investigations that would be appropriate in this uh, in this type of patient in a, in a PACES exam. And the next thing would be moving on to the management. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, the only thing is obviously, again, history, depending on the scenario, a younger patient is uh, LP and EEG are the other things. If, if you know, you're, you're probably not going to get onto that in a consultation. But if you had a young person presenting, you might do the more kind of advanced investigations. But I think the things we discussed before, I think, are the core things. And if you said all of that, you know, you'd be easily um, doing fine on that. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is where the sort of nuance of the station itself comes out, because the, the approach is going to be very different for a, an 80 year old lady with a two year history versus a 55 year old man with a two month history, for example. So yeah, it's important to tailor your approach and, and that will be different depending on the exact circumstances. Listeners, I'm delighted to welcome a brand new podcast partner, Scrubs, in all caps, S-C-R-B-S. This company is run by two GPs and they make awesome scrubs. I've been wearing mine for a couple of weeks now and they absolutely strike the balance between being comfortable, functional and appearing professional at work at a decent price. And they're even more affordable when you use the discount code PACES10 to get 10% off any order. Just head to scrubs.co.uk, S-C-R-B-S co.uk and use the code paces10 for 10% off your order at the checkout so then dad we're going to move on to management but in in with this as well and you mentioned before we hit record the the importance of uh, of communication in this type of station because it may well be that this is a communication station as in in addition to a clinical consultation station so once we have a suspected diagnosis of a dementing process what are the really important aspects of communication either with the patient themselves or with the family member or relative who's there in the station with them if, if this comes up as a communication station rather than a clinical consultation so i think it lends itself well to communication because there's lots of aspects that can be related to this so it can be as simple as explaining a diagnosis of likely dementia to a patient with dementia is getting worse and talking about what the what the options are to sort of support the family. It can be linked in with a, a, a patient with dementia has become 
much more delirious and has had a significant change. It can be related to advanced care planning, end of life care conversations. Um, so it can come up in or discharge planning, I, I guess, is the other key area where, you know, a relative is worried that, pay, that you'll want to discharge their, their, their relative with dementia. So I think the core is always the concerns and I, I hate it because people always just say now you know and what are your concerns and they there's lots of ways of exploring you know why patients are worried and what their questions are so i think for these kind of scenarios the key things are going to be what what is the patient or the surrogate worried about because they'll that's the basis of those scenarios i think what one thing that always kind of gets on my nerves when people in paces is they waffle around and they don't you know they don't just get to the point um, and they're not honest and open with the relatives so they'll defer any kind of real information giving or decision making um, and they'll sort of say oh well I'll talk to someone else or we'll come back again and we'll talk about it again you know you'll be given quite a lot of information in the scenario and we're very careful when writing the scenarios about trying to make sure that if it's an area that you may not be 100% confident in knowledge wise you should have enough information to be able to give give or, or use your clinical judgment so, you know, if it's explaining a diagnosis of dementia, it's being honest and open about what the likely trajectory is and what they can expect, um, but also explaining clearly, you know, how they can be supported. Um, and the key things that are going to come up, as I say, addition to the things that I've mentioned would be, you know, driving, help at home. Um, uh, do they need 24 hour care? Um, what's the trajectory are they going to tank it over a year or is this going to be you know eight years of me trying to look after my my mother um being in hospital the delirium is she going to recover from the delirium this is not quite accurate but the thing i tell my relatives are patient comes with delirium a third get completely back to what they were doing before a third make some good improvement but don't quite get back to where they were and a third have quite a significant decline in their cognition and that's the, the figures aren't quite right but for families and relatives um, I find that a helpful kind of thing. So I think there's a lot to explore, but I think, you know, being confident and using your clinical experience to guide patients is is key um, and making sure that you've really explored and addressed the concerns and provided some empathic responses, um, because I think it's very easy to not to still not do that, despite it being such a key thing absolutely agree it's one of those things where you don't want to say oh you know what are your biggest concerns and they say oh you know i'm concerned i won't be able to live independently and you say oh that's good have you ever smoked and you know you just move on straight away i had exactly that this week um when i was examining somebody said somebody said oh i'm really worried about my job uh and then literally two seconds or so and then are you a smoker <laughs> so that happens more often than you would so this is the type of stuff which is gold dust for our listeners because these are the the traps that well not maybe not traps but these are the pitfalls which we don't want them to fall into so yeah absolutely and when it comes to when you come to have these communication discussions on the management a key part of that is is the mdt involved with looking after these patients down isn't it yeah I th and i think that's really the the mainstay of dementia management there really is very little medical that we do um, I think people think it's more complicated than it is, but it really isn't. And again, for patients, you, you know, an awareness of the medical stuff, but actually the, the, the focus is on the MDT. So if you've ruled out any reversible cause and, and treated any reversible cause, it's really around setting expectations. And actually, there is not a lot we do for patients with dementia, particularly at the early stages. Um, it's left very much to families and people caring for people to just get on with it. So at, that, at the early stages, it's really around signposting them to information, third sector services, Alzheimer's Society, they're excellent. And making sure at that point that they know that as things get worse, there will be help available um, in the form of um, more third sector, kind of dementia nurses potentially. And then as things progress, social services, if, if, if they need care, respite, 24-hour placement, you know, the, you know, if people are living alone and they're, they're unable to cope, occupational therapy have a key role in doing the things that we mentioned earlier around you know helping to ensure that the home environment is safe and um, there's a bit of overlap between what OTs and social workers do turning off the gas taking the car away and then physio obviously may need to be involved if mobility and falls are an issue related but it really is all mostly supportive social care and often at those early stages it's about just signposting what what may be available and may be needed at a later date um, if if at the moment things are just related to some memory concerns. Yeah, I guess the other thing, and just this is going to touch back on the communication side of things as well, but not not being afraid of 
it's almost could almost be a mini breaking bad news as well and and you know saying sad truths like this is a condition which is degenerative it is progressive and they won't recover from it. it it is a progressive condition that's the sort of language i guess which you want listeners to be communicating across rather than saying oh well you know it could get better and you know they still have good days and bad days you, you want them to be clear and honest with the with the patients or the relatives yeah the, the education part is 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 core whether it's in the consultation or whether it's in the communication you know having that knowledge and again if you've had the history that's suggestive and you've come to the you said your my likely differential diagnosis is a type of dementia then yeah, you, you can't beat around the bush and, you know, say we would anticipate that likely, you know, always say never say never because you never quite know, do you? But being really open and honest about the trajectory, and it is hard with dementia because some patients catastrophically go downhill over a year and they can be dead a year later. Other patients, 15, 16 years later, have had a very slow progression. It sort of be guided by the concerns and the scenarios to how far the discussion goes it might be centered around the next kind of six months to a year of managing or it might be around what does this look like you know how long how long have they got kind of thing it can go one of two ways and um, but it, it's difficult to hedge and get that balance right of being honest and open and giving true information versus kind of not wanting to give everything right at the beginning and scaring people so it's, it is also okay to say we can discuss a bit more of this later you know the leaflet classic leaflet that everyone likes to give i don't think that's really essential but everyone seems to think a leaflet is important in paces yeah absolutely you've already alluded to the fact that there's not not a whole lot in the drug cupboard for these uh, types of patients and as someone who regularly prescribes ace inhibitors i've just i had to take a second glance at my research when it's not ace it's ache inhibitors acetylcholinesterase inhibitors um they're they're the main sort of they're, they're the first thing you tend to reach for in these patients yeah exactly so usually if we think they've got an alzheimer's type um of dementia then we will offer if we think it's going to be helpful for the kind of moderate mild to moderate so denepazil rivastigmine galantamine we'll, we'll always say that the evidence is poor that they really don't do very much it's less than one point on the mmsc that they that they improve by Anecdotally, some patients aren't interested and some patients just want to try something. And of those people who try, we would always review it after several months. And some find it really helpful and think there's been a massive difference, in which case we continue and others say actually no difference and we would want to stop it early. Um, So I think it's very individualised. We always give patients the choice about whether they want to give it a go or not, because obviously it comes with, with side effects itself. And, you know, you need to be careful about things like bradycardia and constipation, you know, uh, ur- not constipation, the opposite, um, diarrhea and u- urinary problems. Um, so they have a role, but as long you need to be careful when you're communicating with the, with the relatives around them. And then there's some newer drugs, uh, well, sticking on the um, anticholinesterase inhibitors, I guess, that there is some evidence that in Lewy body dementia, they can help reducing hallucination. So... We will often use um, rivastigmine is the evidence-based one in Lewy body. Um, and we do find that reduces hallucinations sometimes. So there is, there is a role for them. Yeah, brilliant. And is there any is there any licensed medication for the frontotemporal patients, the, the frontotemporal dementia patients? Mm, no, I don't think there's anything we would routinely give to those patients. And same with vascular, apart from modifying vascular risk factors and saying that, you know, if you've been diagnosed with vascular dementia, but you've had no other cardiovascular problems, you don't need to be on primary prevention aspirin. There's no evidence for that. That went out the door years ago. So, no, it's more of a symptomatic treatment, sadly. Um, I mean, I was just going to I was going to come on to the next sort of diagnosis in our list of the normal pressure hydrocephalus. I don't know that that is something where the ongoing management would be expected of, of PACES candidates. But I wonder whether a VP shunts is something which they would, might be expected to mention if that's an, uh, if, if only if maybe there's very clear evidence that this is a preferred diagnosis. But I think that might be a difficult thing for them to uh, settle on. Yeah. Do you know what? I mean, making a scenario that that was leading towards mph would be relatively easy and probably there would be enough in the history that might point people in that direction i don't think people would be need to know detailed management and you'll get lots of scans that over report normal pressure hydrocephalus it's probably quite a rare diagnosis but if it was really everything was really pointing towards that i think they would just need to know that we would do a therapeutic lumbar puncture and see if it made any difference and i, I think you know, possibly an awareness of VP shunting if, if that helped 
isn't unreasonable, but uh, you wouldn't be expected to have detailed, detailed knowledge beyond those things. Absolutely brilliant. And so I guess the only other thing to say is that if you do find yourself assessing a patient with a different, different of a different demographic, the ones we talked about, the 50 year olds, the more younger patients where it's not clearly a not maybe your typical hospital inpatient, it's going to be a case of looking at the uh, results of the investigations and acting appropriately based on those. So I I feel like it might be difficult for the examiners to assess you on management of those patients because either it's going to be something so rare like CJD or it's going to be something as simple as, oh, well, they're hypothyroid and let's give them some levothyroxine. It's going to be difficult for them to really assess your management-making decisions in that sort of situation yeah you, you would only be expected to sort of do the basic level of what what you'd what you'd got to i think um i guess it's worth mentioning the sort of newer drugs so mamantine is the one that's coming quite commonly uh, you'll see a lot now um it's an nmda receptor antagonist again it's licensed for mild to moderate cognitive impairment uh, mainly associated with alzheimer's we're actually finding it much more helpful for behavioral problems in dementia so we're trying it frequently in patients with BPSD. I haven't found it's overly helpful with cognition itself, but we, we often find it does settle people um, a little bit without resorting to antipsychotics, which is our kind of last line if we really, really are struggling with um, people with BPSD and we really haven't got any other option is to give them a low dose. Once you've done the non-pharmacological you know, management and stuff like that, that's our kind of other... Um, which varies. I think the rate of antipsychotic use is quite variable depending on where you work in the UK. In our local area, we very, very rarely use antipsychotics, um, really selected, but other places, I think they use them a lot more. Yeah, and just for the non-geriatricians among our listeners, the BPSD stands for Behavioural and Psychological Symptoms of Dementia. So, Dan, I think we've come to the end of our end of our assessment of our patient with a memory loss or cognitive impairment. Do you have any final advice for our listeners with regard to this type of station? No, I think if you get this, it's probably a gift because uh, it should be clear from the history what's going on. You need to then just think systematically as you work through. And if you come out with, you know, the core diagnoses and the core investigations and you have an awareness of the main aspects of the management, then, you know, this should be an easy station to kind of get full marks on because they're sort of quite specific things and it's not too esoteric and um, so uh, yeah just be systematic in the history the rest should come basically absolutely fantastic well i think that brings us to the end of our conversation on memory loss and cognitive impairment which only leaves us to say a huge thank you to dr dan firmage for helping us tackle this tricky pace of topics so dan thank you so much for giving up some time today no problem thank you for having me it's been a pleasure and so listeners that is all the time we've got for this week's show please don't forget to like and follow the podcast on our twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we always love to hear from you and it's been really great to hear from those of you who have uh, emailed with your experiences of the new paces format and you can do that on our twitter which is at prepaces podcast or via the website prepacespodcast.com and if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show directly you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you for listening. I've been Dr. Sam Williams, and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces podcast. <laughs>